Justin Bieber was the first one that I was like, I don't know if I've ever listened to a like I don't I don't know if the, like statistically I probably have heard music from some of his songs, but I'm sure, but I don't recognize them, and it's possible that even that hasn't occurred. And I thought like, you know, I see the name enough. Should I go and spend the time to do this? And that's and then I realized uh, I don't know, a couple months ago that like a whole new generation of pop music torch passing had occurred but I was equally uh, out of touch with Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by declaring them a national emergency. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, with me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Will. David, how is it going? Doing well, Charles. It's good to resume our discussions after this perilous two-week journey through the world that we engaged on. Yeah, I mean, you're safe. You're so far away from where the emergency and crisis is. Here in D.C., where we're only a couple thousand miles away from it, I mean, I don't know. It's been it's been day-to-day. Yeah. It's, um, it's an interesting thing to... Well, yeah, it's not actually that interesting. It's just sad. It's just sad to see this opportunity for some clarity. Hmm. And think clarity on constitutional roles. You know, we talked about the power of the purse and uh, the English Civil War and the Long Parliament and all that as you know part of the history of the separation of powers that you don't necessarily have to know in order to be. A politician, but um, the you know were experiences in the heritage of our society, you know, in the, in the broadest sense, that led to the system that we have, and um, that we you know had to learn the hard the you know we maybe is the wrong word, but people had to learn the hard way to separate those powers and previous generations, uh, it, you know, using that lesson created the constitution in the way that they did. And now we're, uh, you know, we're seeing this man, you know, crap all over that. And it could be such a great opportunity for people to sort of brush off the dust and understand what, uh, you know, the great value of that, um, of those lessons from the past are, and maybe, you know, this is, maybe to some extent that's happening, but it's also just sad to think like, yeah, no, probably this is just going to be one more step in the degradation of our, you know, political system because of the way that the Republicans are, you know, Republican politicians are, are failing to respond adequately to this moment, but maybe I'll be surprised. Always nice to be surprised if your expectations are <laughs> very pessimistic. It would be a very big surprise. Yeah. That's, yeah, um, I don't have a lot of hope that they'll finally grow a backbone and and do this just because it's phenomenally unpopular with the entire rest of the country, but their base likes it. 
Um, I follow 538s. I check in day-to-day on um, 538s presidential approval tracker. And no individual day, no particular time you look at it is all that relevant. But you see trends. And during the shutdown, his approval dropped several points. And I think he was down to like a min- a, a, like 15 points underwater on approved, disapproved. Since the shutdown ended, um, he has been steadily going back up, you know, slowly because 538s is a, you know, it's a, it, it's a bunch of, of polls. So, um, you know, one change isn't going to make a huge difference from one poll, but, um, but yeah, now he's like at about 10 points underwater. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that frustrates me because you see it go, because it's been the same pattern we've had for I mean, going back even into the campaign, he'll do something incredibly stupid and awful, like the shutdown, or make some gaffe on the campaign trail that's really horrible. His 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 numbers drop, and then it goes out of the news cycle, and people somehow they just start crawling back up once that's out of the news cycle, and it's this pattern that happens over and over and over again, and you start to wonder. Who are these people who keep realizing he's going to do stupid things that upset them over and over again, but they forgive him after a couple of weeks, and they just do this over and over and over again? I mean, I, I haven't followed previous presidential approval numbers as um, as closely, so maybe this is just a regular thing for everybody. But um, and 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 his points only ever really move within a narrow band, but it is this like four or five percent of people who seem to just be switching their minds every now and then based on the stupidest thing he's done recently. And as, as I said, why can't they just decide, you know what? He might just be a bad person. Let's stop jerking back and forth and acknowledge that he's going to keep doing stuff that makes us upset. It's not like his numbers go back up because he does something good. It's just that they keep going back as long as he hasn't currently done something stupid that's in the news right now. That's been my observation. Well, the problem with statistics is you have to interpret data in order to get the statistics and so the interpretation can lead the data in a lot of different directions and i think you know the obvious point here is that those 30 to 40 percent to 30 you know to 45 percent of the country um are very likely not doing any of what you just said, but instead just saying, are things good or bad? You know, and then answering the question, Donald Trump up or down in terms of just their own experience with their own lives. Um, Obviously people try to spend a lot of time uh, polishing the, the way they collect data in order to eliminate those types of responses. But, um, <clears throat> you know, the, I don't think it's that, I think it's that useful to become so focused on the, uh, the poll tracker saying, you know, I say this doing it myself. Like I also go to five thirty eight and look at it and think, God, how could people, you know, how could people be, um, you know, how, could, how could his approval rating be uh, recovering after the shutdown? You know, how are people not understanding? How are they not learning? How are they not achieving the enlightened position that I have achieved 
so many years ago. You know, that's obviously not the point. People are living their own lives and saying, you know, are things, presumably they're saying, are things good or bad for me and mine in my community? And if so, then, yep, well, you know, Trump must be doing a good job. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's a better to clarify, I mean, as I said, I'm not, I understand that there's this percentage of the country that supports him for whatever reason. I'm just, it's just the, the back and forthness that seems, based on what I see, now obviously as you said, interpretation is relevant, but it seems driven by the news cycle, as if it's just like, oh yeah, well, he hasn't done anything stupid today, so yeah, I'll forgive him for the stupid thing he did yesterday. Um, I don't know, it's just that, it's just that four or five percent that that drives me crazy where they seem to um uh where they where they seem to go back and forth i mean i don't know that it's not obviously we don't know it's the same people but um i don't know i have some confidence in 538's overall poll trackers having an overall big enough sample size that we could maybe conclude there is a percentage of the population that keeps going back and forth on him but i don't know i you 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 could be right, but um, sadly we can't devote more resources to this because while 2016 should have alerted us that there was a national polling emergency, um, we did not successfully declare one and allocate the resources. So I mean, what are we going to do? So so what is the, the national emergency that you would like to dub? Yeah, you know, that you announce for for Sunday, the Sunday night. Well. To be clear, there's a um, the, the, as I have stated before, the polls were not really that the polls were not that wrong in 2016, as I have said over and over again. But there's also not an emergency at our border, so if you can declare one fake emergency to devote resources, I say we declare another fake emergency and devote resources to have I don't know some other kind of polling. I don't really have a proposal ready to go on what one would do with. $5.6 billion of funds for, um, for polling, but I'm sure, I'm sure someone could find a use. Yeah, well, I'm sure that we will very soon see, uh, the first $5.6 billion election campaign. <laughs> seems like a pretty safe bet. I'm, I'm changing the topic a little bit now, but, um, yeah, and that, that had never occurred to me before, but it, it seems quite likely that with the rate at which these things are uh, expanding in in scope and cost that, I mean, that could even be like 12 or 16 years from now at the, at the latest, given how, you know, I think, I think 20, was it 2012 or 20 or 2008 was the first billion dollar campaign. I don't know. Um, so. I would assume that there was some kind of spike after Citizens United in 2010, but right. um, well, that raises the problem how you even count the, the right. figure. Yeah, I mean, I and and then and for that matter, like one of the things that was biggest for Donald Trump was free media, which wouldn't go into any of those numbers either. So. I don't know. I, it, on the other hand, when people say, oh, we spend so much on these elections, well, when you look at the consequences, that actually seems almost small to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I think people should, I mean, obviously, we, um, 
are more focused on politics than a lot of people, and that could be for the worse. But uh, you know, but like obviously we both think it is important. So I think people should be, you know, talking about politics more and uh, interacting with politics more. Right. So spending money on it is, um, you know, you don't have to think that money equals speech to think that it makes sense to devote more of your resources and time, social capital and, you know, finances to, to engaging in politics. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you you know, me, I'm, um, a, a believer in paying lots of attention to these things, but that's because I don't have a life. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well that is, i mean that's that's part of the problem is uh you know bowling alone the basically the topic of like every david brooks column some of the work that's being done on the effect of social media on people's psychology um you know it is it's possible that the way that people share stories about political issues online um, undermines the purpose of organizing socially and politically, which should be, you know, creating communities of shared value and debating and persuading and engaging um, because the the tool of social media instead breaks people apart, uh, increases the sense of anxiety and lack of satisfaction and frustration and, and all that, um, which, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of and even talked about a fair amount of. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's just tough because like the Norman Rockwell uh, New England town hall style of democracy would seem like a better approach where you actually go and sit down and talk with people about things face to face. But to the extent that it ever existed at all, uh, it certainly is um, You know, it's impossible to apply at the at the at the scale of like federal politics, which still means a huge amount in people's lives, and is even difficult to apply at the level of like municipal politics and state politics, and um, you know, so you, so you sort of need these depersonalized platforms, even though they introduce their own negative consequences. Anyway, yeah, I mean. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where we're going with that, but it, everything is everything is complicated. Every solution contains the seeds of a new problem, and yeah, all our so, solutions contain the seeds of their own destruction. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. There's. I mean, what does one even really say about a? national emergency that isn't a national emergency with the person declaring the national emergency openly said that he didn't need to declare the national emergency, but he wanted to get it done faster for 
something that, I mean, it's just every part of this is just so facially absurd that you would use the term emergency for this. That said, some um, legal writers whose opinions I respect have indicated that he might win court challenges on the emergency part because the specific act that gives him authority to do some of those things is vague enough that he could get away with it. Hmm. So, you know, now apparently for the amount of money he wants, he's actually cobbling it together from a bunch of different sources under different laws. And some of them are more open, are are clearer to challenge than others are. Um, But uh, I mean, we'll have to see how that goes through the courts. It's also, I mean, the, the phrasing of this is something that will strike alarm bells for anybody who's read history. Just the idea of a leader who can't get what he wants through the normal process declaring an emergency. We have a tendency to think of that as a vague thing you can just do. There are actual laws that are involved here. And they may be, as I said, vague enough or broad enough that some of this can count without being the kind of... Um, you know, it's not. Oh, the Reichstag burned down. You better give me more emergency powers. It's it's not it's not really that. Um, even though in its intent and in its its plain language, it is an attempt to do that that sort of thing. Yeah, I actually am curious to hear which like what those are legal arguments were that you may uh, that you indicated a minute ago. Um, you were. How to phrase this? Not not persuaded of the underlying merits of the argument, perhaps, but persuaded that courts would very likely uh, accept the government's arguments uh, for the president having these powers. Because of all people, I actually read a um, is it Andrew Napolitano? This like there Fox is. News. <clears throat> yeah, the 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 former judge who's on Fox yeah, News. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he wrote a piece uh, citing the um, Youngstown Steel uh, concurring right. opinion that talked about the three areas of right. presidential power. When Congress uh, has spoken, when Congress hasn't spoken, exactly, and when and when Congress has refused, right? And you know this this would seem to be in that third area pretty clearly but what's the argument against that if you if you recall um i i could pull it up here but it would take a few minutes it was on uh yeah. it was, was on lawfare blog i, I can send you the link okay. later maybe post it in the show notes as sure. well um but the issue here was was essentially that as i said because it's 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 not just one declaration of emergency it's a bunch of different sources you can cobble things together from and some of them include things like using military funds to build structures or something like that because um, hmm. there's there's a lot of stuff that could theoretically apply sure okay um, but again some of that other stuff that does not involve actually declaring an emergency some of the opinions said that might actually be sketchier to try to do um, I don't know. Um, it's it's strange because even with the declaration of emergency and taking the funds he wants, trying to emasculate um, Congress's power of the purse, which is its you know its its primary power. Uh, even with all of that, it still doesn't really sound like people expect the wall to end up getting built. 
Well, I mean, there is no the wall, right? I right. mean, what's the... That, that's why they've started using it as a mass noun and saying wall. We have to build wall. Right. I mean, this is another thing where it's hard to know. And this goes all the way back to the campaign of you know, taking him literally and taking him seriously. And it's just hard to know whether... Um, And it makes it even worse, but it's like whether people actually, whether the people who support him and say that they'll, you know, go out and cheer at the rallies when he talks about the wall and wall, you know, what they are thinking when they do that, what they think he means when he's, when he talks about this issue. Um, you know, it seems that they just don't really care that much about the language, you know, about what he's actually talking about. They just, support him for other reasons and you know other other than like the exact form of whatever structure ends up being built in what places right like they don't they don't actually care about those details which they show even as they signal that they care about the issue that the quote-unquote wall is designed to address um and so because they don't care about the details that again, you get this interpretation issue where people who hate Trump make interpretations based on watching his addresses and listening to his, you know, ramblings. And then people who support him say things like, you know, he's a Greek tragic hero who is too noble to be allowed to stay in the country after he does his duties to support it. Which, he is Ajax. You know, he is Ajax. Which again, it's like, can you actually believe that anyone, you know, seriously thinks that even as they say it? And so you, I'll, I'll, I pass the ball to you now. To I have not a ton to. of doubt that Victor Davis Hanson has convinced himself that that is true. <laughs> um, although I would, I would note. So, um, for those those of you um, who have no idea what we're talking about, which should be all of you, I'd be kind of concerned if anybody listening to this actually did know what we were talking about, because this is a reference to a Victor Davis Hanson uh, piece recently, where he talked about how Trump is basically a Greek tragic hero like Ajax. And um, at first, you roll your eyes, and then you're like, yeah, okay. Then you read the article, and you roll your eyes a little bit into it. But his overall point was that um, it wasn't so much to exalt Trump by saying that he is like a Greek tragic hero, although it does also do that, but to point out that the Greek tragic heroes were petty, awful people. And Trump is a petty, awful person. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I do think there's there's a mistake in the piece where he um, conflates being an awful person with being a hero, but... Um, but yeah, that, that's what we are addressing there. Um, meanwhile, I've pulled up the article I was referring to with the sources of the funding. Um, this is a Lawfare blog piece, which I will also try to uh, link in the show notes. Our show notes will largely be links this week. Um, and uh, it, it points out that there's a 600, there's 601, so of the like 5.6.5 billion or whatever is he's total trying to do for this, um, 601 million will come from the Department of the Treasury Forfeiture Fund, which he can basically just use. That's for seized assets. Um, 
Then there's uh, some section that involves construction of roads and fences and installation of lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries of the United States. Um, and I guess they're just pulling out of some fun that's just for like lots of things related to that. And then there's the National Emergencies Act, which is like the last 3.6 billion, um, I think. I don't know. It's I have to. I'm not going to read the entire article out loud here, but <laughs> but basically, as I said, it's things like that. There's a bunch of different sources before you actually have to declare an emergency. Uh, but you know, it's we took a class um, twelve or thirteen years ago on the presidency in college and. We read a book on the War Powers Act and how Congress needs to take power back from the executive. And that's basically just been an issue ever since the Second World War, really. I mean, the, the growth of the executive branch has been pretty breathtaking. And Congress has been pretty ineffective at taking any powers back, in part because when Congress is in opposition to the president then the two sides don't agree and the president does whatever he can through executive action. And when Congress and the president agree, the Congress isn't going to do anything to bind a president of its own party. So I don't really know how that kind of problem gets fixed. You'd have to have veto-proof majorities in the House and Senate that are both in opposition to the president and believe in this as a principle, and also who don't think that it would be bad to bind a president that they might elect because every party always thinks they're going to win the next presidential election. Yeah, you know it's it's a it is a vexing question as to how you know given the the I mean the, the we we talked about this issue as well I mean the Constitution's um, the Constitution's structure was designed in part to function by putting. Uh, ambition against ambition and that was supposed to work in the context of individual politicians who were working against each other and to some extent um you know interest groups but despite the fact that they that the founders were aware of parties yeah you know, they didn't really create a system that functioned explicitly on the basis of party politics and you know that's a big reason that we um that we face this issue that you just described because you know nancy pelosi has her own i mean she has a tremendous amount of power because of the office that she holds and she has her own interpretation of what it means to be a democrat and you know um, the direction of the party, the direction of the country, the direction of humanity, whatever. But for the most part, you know, when, when, when she controlled, uh, when there were those two years of democratic control of, of the house Senate and the presidency in 2008 or nine through 11, um, it was mostly the white house setting the agenda in exactly the way that you described. Um, and, now you don't have, I mean, now she's basically masterminding the, um, 
you know, the House uh, opposition to the Republican agenda, particularly as uh, sort of, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, Democrats want to want to make it all about Trump, even if it's partly about Mitch McConnell as well. Um, but anyway, so she's she's sort of masterminding. But again, once once a president, uh, once a presidential candidate is uh, nominated by the Democrats, then again the, the sort of locus of or the sort of the weight of uh, power in determining the the trajectory of the party will then shift back in that direction. And it's you know, there's no there's no clear path towards um, a system that carves out more power for the uh, for the legislature. Even though, I mean, I suppose Nancy Pelosi herself talks about the fact that the you know it's Article One for a reason. It's, it's supposed to be the more important branch. Um, but yep, that's the that's the that's the world we live in, and it's it's difficult to imagine what um, what could uh, you know push us in that away from the current direction that we have of just a, a ratchet of steadily increasing significance given to the, to the office of the president. Right. Uh, I mean, some, as you have hinted at there, some of our problems originate from the fact that the founding fathers warned us against parties and factionalism and then designed a system that works best if you don't have them and didn't really prepare enough for the fact that parties and factions form. You know, they, they sort of wanted to avoid that, even though they themselves pretty much immediately formed factions and parties. Um, but they designed a system sort of hoping we wouldn't do that. Um, and the stronger that gets, the, you know, the worse some of it functions. Uh, it's, there, there just isn't a good answer to some of that with the system that we have. We have a system which is not parliamentary, so it doesn't embrace the party structure that much and diffuses the power. And well, that it doesn't, it's not it's not like it just started immediately after uh, or when I say it, the, we were we've just been talking about this ratchet of significance in the in the office of the presidency. Um, but, you know, all through the 19th century, there were presidents who were just sort of reflected by their parties. Oh, right. And, yeah. I mean, the presidency you know. has been weak in the past. I, I didn't mean to claim that the presidency became strong. I meant that the factionalism increased from the existed from the beginning. Right. But, but now now we have this interesting phenomenon of the. You know, whoever the presidential candidate is, then. Basically, de facto takes over their party and, and redefines it. And obviously, there's a, there's a certain amount of inertia. uh within the party, um, but mostly, I mean, here we have Trump as a, as a quite significant example of this, you know, for, in, in, in many ways, uh, <laughs> just a, is a brain transplant of whoever gets nominated. Um, if they win, I mean, if they, if they want to become president, obviously, um, if they're nominated and fail, then, that doesn't necessarily have an effect, but you know that's that seems that's a relatively. I mean that that seems to be a twentieth and twenty first century phenomenon. 
right? Right. And, I mean, I mean, mass communication is a big part of that. Yeah. Although you know, you you because you can look at the 19th century in particular, and there's just from Andrew Jackson until Abraham Lincoln, there's just a swath of presidents who, um, you know, are considered historical nobodies. James K. Polk being sort of like the one exception. Um, and even then, people a lot of people would be like, who? Um, and then after Abraham Lincoln, you get this large swath of presidents that nobody really remembers until you get to Teddy Roosevelt. Now, important things did occur during that period. Um, and I think William McKinley might be a little underrated for his influence. But again, you get this large group of people that nobody really remembers. And then after Teddy Roosevelt, people tend not to remember and certainly not to remember fondly the presidents between that Roosevelt and the next Roosevelt. Um, and it was that second Roosevelt who really expanded during the Depression and World War II, all of the executive office stuff. And then the fact that all of this happened at a point that coincides with um, the, uh, you know, with mass communication becoming a phenomenon. And Donald Trump, of course, has become the master of the current form of bite-sized mass communication, which you can do directly to people you want to, which is Twitter. Um, because, you know, presidents always complain about, they always think, oh, well, we'll just go in front of the people, we'll use the bully pulpit, it'll change people's minds. And it never really does. And unpopular, unpopular things tend not to become popular simply because the president talks about them more. This has been true even for Trump. Um, and and they, they tend to use, you know, Oval Office speeches as they're like, this is my big way to talk to the American people without any filters or the, or the media in the way or anything like that. But it still never really changes anything, and it certainly didn't for Trump when he tried to do that during the shutdown. Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't know if he's actually a master of the, or or what, what does it mean if to say that he's the master of the form? I think he's the master of getting talked about, right? Which was a huge part of his path to victory was just as you mentioned earlier in the discussion just now, the free media that he got from legacy media. And I think a large part of that came from this, this uh, deplorable uh, state of the world that we're in, where Twitter drives, I mean, it, it drives clicks and then media outlets chasing engagement, then decide that, like things that people tweet are sufficient to provide the basis of articles that come out. So, um, uh, I don't know how much of the, it's like there, you know, Trump is on a boat on the ocean and I don't know how much of what we've been seeing in terms of the media's engagement with him is, him exerting that much control over where the boat goes so much as just being there on the ocean and being pushed around. Right. No, I would, I would absolutely like like he gets attention, but as you said, he can't, he 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 hasn't used Twitter to like change the way people think that much. I mean, I guess maybe you could argue that, um, again, this sort of way that he's convinced the Republican party to, um, you know, to ride or die on, on the wall is a, maybe a counterexample to that, but 
you know, but like where the where the Republicans essential uh, you know core constituent interests contrasted with his heterodoxies, the party won. Right, like Trump was talking about taxing the rich, and uh, they had the whole sort of weird Bannon influence on his rhetoric. Um, but the signature policies are, or the signature policy is the tax cuts, and this, other than that, the singular achievement is uh, judges who are, you know, approved by this very uh, sort of core establishment Republican. Uh, you know. So, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much the, that narrative of Trump as sort of master of the new environment is, um, there's, there's clearly something to it because he, he did succeed in drawing the attention to himself that he needed in order to get to the position that he's in now. But, um, you know, how much control is he exercising over the process? Right. Well, I mean, I would I would state because I agree with you in principle on all of that. Uh, I would state that um, his goal is to get attention, and he gets attention better th- uh, through Twitter than pretty much anybody else does. Um, right. You know, it, it's true that he. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 true that he is as president driven by other forces and other interests than what he initially sort of started saying, but he's also, I mean, he doesn't really have, aside from hating illegal immigration and trade, he doesn't really have any long-term running fixed principles. Everything else is just whatever plays with the crowd. The entire idea of building a wall wasn't something he originally cared about until an advisor said, you should say, build the wall. He's like, that's stupid. He says, build the wall. The crowd loves it. He gets into it. And now we have to build a wall simply because the crowd liked it enough that it became a thing he was obsessed with. Just like the phrase drain the swamp, when he first heard it, he didn't like it. Um, but he tried it, and the crowd loved it, and so he went with it. Right. It's. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree that he is somebody who is unable to control or really do anything helpful with, um, with the country, but he is a master at what he is ultimately trying to do, which is get attention and be president. Right, which is perhaps... Um... You know, one of the one of the things I uh, phrase I saw uh, circulating in response, I think it might, it might have actually been through the crooked media people uh, in response to this last couple of weeks is, you know, norms are not enough. You know, fewer norms, more laws. You know, the answer to um, the challenge of the Trump, or not the answer to, but the uh, the thing that the Trump presidency reveals to us is that norms are insufficient because you get, you know, eventually you get someone like Trump who uh, doesn't just bend them but completely ignores them. But uh, now moving on, the following is, is me. I don't know if they said this or not, but um, the thing about uh, this, you know, the other thing about this current crisis is that the you know, laws have actually not been so bad. The you know, performance of of the law is not quite so uh, pathetic as 
as the performance of norms. And so, you know, we, we don't have to be that pessimistic as long as we respond to this moment by passing more laws to replace uh, the norms where that's even possible. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem is that, you know, the reason that there are more norms than laws is that the norms are flexible enough to actually guide us through the tremendous complexity of, of, day, of you know, regular existence. Whereas laws uh, get out of date and have to, you know, there's, there's obviously more of a, a cost to um, going through the process of clarifying and implementing and uh, adjusting laws, especially when you consider the fact that the whole point is to keep up with someone uh, or, you know, groups of people, organizations of interest that exist specifically to bend and evade and escape the laws. I mean, here just a, you know, I was talking about Trump and things like the emergency declaration, but it's equally valid and perhaps even more pressing in the context of response to, you know, these proposals by the democratic candidates, um, to increase taxes on the rich, you know, income taxes, wealth taxes, um, the uh, various health uh, care reform proposals that they're making, you know, and a big a big part of the response to these is like, okay, you can have these great plans to change everything by passing laws, but there are vested interests that are going to spend, you know, that have a lot of money, and particularly in the context of you know, institute or um, industries targeted by the you know socialist uh, democratic you know uh, reforms. Uh, they have a lot of incentive to spend all that money to evade the reforms, and so uh, you know it is it's a it is a important issue to address. But you know, but whenever I uh, here it now gone on for a while, but the you know the response to that <laughs> always strikes me to be like, yeah, no one ever said it would be easy, but the, the question of whether a policy is a good or bad policy should be separate from the question of whether it will be difficult or not to actually enforce the policy and, and maintain the effectiveness of their policy. Right. Although they can't be entirely disconnected. I mean, I mean the policy that cannot be, you know, effectively run is not really something you can't do. Right. But they're not the same question is my right. point. I, I mean, like, you know, and it's like saying you'll never stop all murders. So why bother? criminalizing murder it's a good point it's, like, it's just a we stupid change argument. those laws yeah. yeah i mean right it's it, there's a i have always hated the the mindset of because it cannot be perfect it should not be done um which um there was an article when kirsten gillibrand announced she was running for president um, an article in, on Talking Points Memo about her efforts to get the Zadroga bill through. If, if you remember that, that was the one for healthcare for 9-11 first responders who uh, right. received health, had health problems as a result. And 
It was this long article about all the absurd efforts you had to go through to get this thing passed. And it's honestly, again, here's another article we'll have to link in the show notes. It's obscene to me, reading this article, that she had to go through these efforts. This should be the most popular bill idea that you could come up with. It's helping the heroes of 9-11. Like, what could be more of a slam dunk than that? And somehow, this article recounts how it almost didn't happen. And a big part of why it almost didn't happen is that the Republicans just didn't, they didn't really want it. And they, they were about to take over after the 2010 elections. And so they had to get this thing through at the last minute uh, before the Republicans took over. And so why is it that the Republicans were opposed to health, a health care bill for 9-11 survivors? And uh, part of the reason for it is that they kept saying, well, there could be fraud. There, there's fraud concerns in here. And that's what you hear so often with them when it comes to something like welfare or any kind of um, any any kind of social welfare thing. Well, but fraud. What about fraud? People could commit fraud. And they're perfectly willing, as I think I've noted in past episodes, to let lots of innocent, deserving people suffer because they're concerned one or two people might um, get something unfairly. And it's like that with um, the voting laws that we've been seeing. I mean, the... The the story coming out of North Carolina right now, if you've heard about that one, how they basically right. have to redo the election because it was just such a disaster. And who was the and then and there was a, a a piece about how the person who was supposed to have been um, making sure that that sort of thing didn't happen was devoting all of his resources to non-existent in-person voter fraud. Yeah, that's a good that's a good tie over, and it could, just because it's. Just because the the numbers in that particular dimension of this issue are so completely insane, you know the I, I forget exactly what the order of magnitude is now, but um, you know there's the the old criminal justice concept of ten guilty men should go free in order to avoid punishing the one you know falsely punishing one innocent person, right. Um, and we're well aware that the Republican Party would invert those numbers. Like, they would rather have 10 innocent people suffer than let one guilty person get away. And that means... Um, I'm, yeah, well, I think, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, Democrats do not fare so well on uh, criminal justice. You know, the, 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 the punitarian streak... In uh, or the punitive, excuse me, the punitive streak in our society is, I think, a bipartisan one. It is, unfortunately. Um, um, yeah, and but, and on occasions when they deviate from that, like the recent uh, attempts at criminal justice reform, it has at times been bipartisan. It's one of those issues where the the real problem is you need to get everybody to agree to do this because anybody who if if some people do it and other people don't and other people don't back it, then the the people who didn't back it even though they knew it was the right thing to do, we'll be able to go, Oh, well, you're, you're, you're weak on crime. Yeah. You're weak on crime. Yeah. And, and just to, just to, um, you know, um, to, to color my previous remark a little bit, you know, I stand by what I just said, but like, there is still a difference I think between, uh, the two parties on, even on this issue akin to the, you know, to the old line about Trump that, uh, not every person voting for Trump is a racist. 
but every racist voted for Trump, you know, uh, on on the criminal justice issue. Um, you know, Trump, yeah, like, sure. Give, give the present administration and especially, you know, the Republicans, uh, in the Congress, some credit for these, uh, what I believe it's called the first, the first step act mm-hmm. in this recent criminal justice right. reform. Uh, yeah, they get, they get all the credit that is due from that, uh, from that, uh, bill. But, you know, Trump pardoned, there's this whole media issue with, uh, you know, the, um, Kim Kardashian and coming in and telling him about someone who was wrongly, uh, imprisoned. I forget all the details of the case, but, you know, Trump made hay from this act of clemency and farsightedness and look at me, I'm creating new constituencies for the Republican party. Uh, by showing that I care about issues traditionally associated with, you know, with African Americans, and then like a, sometime in the last week, he, and not even just in the last week, like at various points over the past couple of years, yeah, referred to how uh, uh, Duterte in, in the Philippines had the right approach by summarily executing drug dealers, right. which. You know, if that were the policy in the United States, the person he pardoned would have been, you know, long ago rotting away in the ground. And it's just, you know, there's a reason that he makes those cracks and that they have uh, play in on that side of the aisle, even though you can't tar literally all uh, Republican voters and politicians with that same brush. Well, I, I definitely think the criminal justice reform was one of those things where he was buffeted by um, by events. I mean, somebody came in and said, hey, do this. And he was like, oh, sure, that sounds like a good idea. But it's not part of any broader belief that he has. In fact, we know um, one of the more infamous moments in his career has been the um, the, the Central Park Five, where right. he put out that big full page ad saying we should execute them. And of course, it later turned out they were innocent. Uh, that's one of those moments that should cause some reflection, but he is not capable of that. Yeah. The only, I mean, I, I totally agree that that, that episode from his past does seem to, uh, have a significant amount of, uh, sort of predictive power for his approach to issues in the present. But one, one difference is that, um, you know, if you talk about summary executions of drug dealers and, you can say, okay, what were people saying 30 years ago about drug dealers versus what are we people, what are we saying now about drug dealers and drug users and the whole drug economy? That's a whole set of conversations. But the main issue is that we're, as a society, saying we should approach drug, I mean, just the, we should approach the consumption of production, consumption, trade, sale, whatever, of drugs in a, in a totally different way. We should be less punitive about it we should we should think of it more as a you know health issue or whatever the approach is we should have more mercy less sort of militarized response um you know rape and violent crime are on a different category right so like trump is still clearly you know motivated by a certain core classist and racist approach 
that was manifested in him saying, you know, those people should be executed when, you know, and then when, when those people were, you know, when the actual central, uh, central park five were exonerated by the evidence, you know, he didn't, he refused to update his, his priors. Like, why is that? Well, I'm sure if they were white, you know, if the police had happened to round up some white people, Trump would not have dug in like that. Um, but part of the issue, you know, is actually different to, to talk about like a, a general societal shift in its perspective, in its perception of um, the social cost of and the best response to drug crimes as opposed to, you know, violent crime. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the way it makes it even worse. I mean, the racial issue is even worse because, like, we're just realizing that it was just a stupid, ineffective approach from the beginning, and the the cost of that stupid, effective, you know, ineffective approach was borne so disproportionately by people of color, right? I mean, it, it makes it even worse in a way, even more tragic. It's like I don't think we'll. It, 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 I would be surprised if we in our lifetime see that kind of shift in approach uh, translated to violent crimes, violent and sexual crimes. Hmm. Right. Um, but the fact that we have seen that shift makes it even more tragic that so many people's lives were destroyed, mostly in you know, the communities of African-American well, and Hispanic. I mean, and, now you see stories about people who are in jail for drug crimes in states where they've recently legalized marijuana. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, what do you do with somebody who's in jail for something that is no longer a crime? Exactly. No, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. It makes it even more, even more tragic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's rough. Yeah, uh, it's reminding me of, you know, the, what was that layer of hell that was, uh, described as the the whirlwind oh yeah that's what I'm, that's what i'm picturing right now because we're, we're talking about you know society changing and politics changing and all these things that are such rapid shifts or even if they're not actually that rapid you just sort of it's, it's people often people seem to lose sight of them you know and for long time listeners of the show will know that Satan is unchanging and, and unshifting. Yeah, well, you're talking about, you know, Dante's version of, of Satan uh, frozen in the lake of ice or uh, the Milton one that I ranted so impassioned in such an impassioned yeah. way about. Yeah. Yeah, it's... There are certain flaws that I think we sometimes treat as a flaw of our politics when they're really flaws in human nature and we don't really look at it as a flaw of human nature. And I think that um, being overly punitive is one of those because the fact that a politician can get up and say, the politi no politi politicians don't win elections by getting up and saying, I'm going to make our criminal justice reform system better to help people who don't deserve to be punished more. They win elections by saying, I'm going to be tough on crime. My opponent isn't as tough on crime. That's it's a human flaw that people respond to that that they respond to appeals to fear in general. And yeah, well, I mean, there are it's not just broken have, politics. There are societies that have effectively changed their um, approach to 
criminal justice. And indeed, um, the United States in the 19th century was understood to be a, a, a world leader in um, sort of humane punishment. Uh, you know, that, or at least that's the, um, I believe that's the, uh, the point of, you know, Foucault on uh, his study of discipline and punishment. Um, but, uh, you know, so, the, so these, so you can't say it's exactly human nature or that this only goes in one direction because, yeah, look, I mean, look back 600 years, people were being hacked apart and hung to rot in public places, you know, so that, uh, so that the society could see them being punished for what they had nominally done. You know, we've, we've obviously gotten better than that. And in certain ways, in America, we seem to be backsliding on um, sort of the, the, the glee of, uh, or the, the, the sense of the need to extract a pound of flesh, um, even though the effect of the punishment does not actually stop crime either from that individual person or uh, from society in general through a more general deterrent effect. But you know, we may have backslid over the past whatever frame of time, but you know, before that, we were definitely improved from where right. we no, it, were as, as like a human race. It's definitely true that we have improved on this. Um, I don't mean to imply that it's impossible; just that, in general, appeals to tough on to being tough on crime exploit a human frailty. Um, well, they definitely. I mean, they definitely. My my only my response to that is that they exploit an American cultural uh, reality that just is true now. And I think it doesn't have to be true inevitably because, you know, I, I agree with the general principle that there is human nature, but in human nature you have vindictiveness and you also have pragmatism and you also have mercy. So, you know, you just have to figure out how to... Uh, safety aid, you know, or, or avoid triggering the sense of vindictiveness and, and focus on pragmatism and mercy in proposing these, these approaches. I was, I was listening to, um, some stuff on, you know, listening to a characterization of, um, drug policy in like Switzerland and Portugal on the, you know, which are, I, I've often heard of the Portugal case being cited um, as like a very good example of the extreme benefit to decriminalizing uh, narcotics. Yes. But apparently there was a similar uh, approach taken in Switzerland of saying, like, let's not attack, punish, criminalize these people. Let's treat it as a, as a basically the equivalent of a health issue and we'll spend the money that we had been spending on police and uh, criminal prosecution and imprisonment and spend, or excuse me, instead spend it on, um, you know, the equivalent of methadone clinics and, you know, free um, uh, the, like needle exchanges and halfway houses and stuff like that. And, you know, 
in both cases, it was presumably some combination of people saying like, oh, it'll make us feel better to know that we're not destroying the lives of our fellow citizens, but instead nurturing them to have better lives, as well as just the pragmatic approach of like, oh, it's better to spend money and have the result of that money being like there are more productive members of this society and not, you know, we're just wasting money perpetually on these concrete boxes full of angry people, you know? And, <laughs> you know, even though it seems like the latter approach is much more entrenched in American society at the moment, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's fixed. You know, I think that's, I think it is something that can change. I agree with that. Um, yeah, I meant more to imply that there are certain human weaknesses as, as regards politicians running in elections. When you actually have the – it's interesting because it's one of those things where when you have the voters vote on it, as we saw in Florida last year, they vote to let felons vote again. You know, the, the voters can be the, – the thing is when the voters are – I am not in general a fan of direct democracy because I think it's caused a lot of problems in places like California – but there are certain instances where things that we want from politicians are not necessarily what we want when we vote for them ourselves. And a case in point on that was the voting reform in Florida, where, you know, if a politician had had proposed that, you can just imagine people like, oh, he wants felons to vote. But when you're actually asking, uh, you know, uh, voters, well, do you think they should be allowed to vote? They said yes. I don't know. It's, yeah, just, it's harder to spin what the voters do before. than what a politician does. We talked about this a little bit before that the that the you know the problem with direct democracy is that it is just incredibly difficult to actually. And this is this is a great. I mean, this would be great. You know, after I finish my point, this would be a great time to you know shut off the podcast because it comes full circle here. It's just incredibly difficult to poll the public in a way that actually reveals useful information. You know, it's, it's hard to pose a question that people respond in an up or down way and then aggregate those responses in a way that is useful or makes any sense. And the more general it is, the more useless it is, you know, when you ask a question. Donald Trump, up or down, approve, disapprove, you know. The EU, leave remain, yeah, leave or remain. You know, it, it, these are useless, stupid, pointless questions because there's no clarity. But you know, felons who have served their time and have been released, uh, with exception of felons, you know, charged with certain violent crimes and sexual crimes, you know, should they be allowed to? Uh, regain their voting rights after paying their debt to society. Like that's actually a specific question, but people can answer yes or no to, uh, you know, in Utah, actually, I think, uh, you know, this very specific question of should, uh, you know, access to the exchanges be expanded in this state as has been done in many other states for certain categories of people, right? Like, um, you know, I should, I'm sort of sabotaging my own point by uh, not recalling in enough detail what the ballot, um, you know, what the referendum was. But, you know, the people responded because there was actually a specific question that was posed to them. It was explained and then 
clarify, you know, clearly written out. And then the uh, effect of that referendum was that the um, access to, um, you know, to I believe Medicare was uh, expanded. And, you know, it's all the more embarrassing that the result of that is that the Utah Republicans have basically stonewalled um, the implementation of that of that ballot. But that's another story. Anyway, yeah. And that's the point we have to close on because you said that in advance. Well, garbage in, garbage out. I mean, you've been, you said you wanted to make more testable predictions and making this have to end when you predicted it would is a prediction we can test. (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. Garbage in, garbage out. Thanks. All right. Well, you heard it. We have to end now. Talk to you guys later. Bye.